Oh, 100%. Coaching saved my life. Coping, yeah, coaching and training, you know, continuing to train uh, as an athlete, um, continuing just to train. I used to punish myself in training. Like, I would put myself through these most ridiculous training sessions just because of the guilt and the, I just didn't feel good about myself. And the coaching was a way to help others. So that it, it helped me escape from my own pain and torment that I was feeling about a marriage breaking down, um, you know, losing so much money, feeling ashamed of what had happened. And the coaching I found when I coached, I just forgot about my own problems. Now, I don't know if I coached well. <laughs> In fact, I'm sure there were days that I was probably a pretty poor coach. But for me, it, uh, it saved my life. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a leader who focuses on developing people to maximize their potential athletically, unlock their true why and purpose, and creating a sustainable and healthy lifestyle. His education includes an advanced certificate in policing from the Queensland University of Technology and a management development postgraduate program at Queensland Police Service. He has a passion for serving the community with 13 years in the Queensland Police Service. He was a business owner of Chaplin Swim School, Everton Park. Head coach for Brisbane Girls Grammar School Athletics Team. General Manager of HealthStream Aquatic and Fitness Queensland. State Manager and Elite Programs Manager at AFL Umpiring Queensland. And Coaching Director and Owner of Tri-Nation Triathlon. Earlier this year, our guest was recruited as a lead performance coach for Triathlon Scotland. I'm pleased to introduce to you a passionate, driven and humble leader who has raised over $100,000 for Epilepsy Queensland and Special Olympics, Mark Turner. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks Craig, glad to be here. You have a real sense and passion for both sport and the community. Was this a focus for you as a child? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, if I think back to my childhood, I was a very, very shy, lacked a lot of confidence. Um, you know, I was the type of kid at school that just sat in the background and never said boo. In fact, I, I don't think, I never even got a detention at school. You know, I, I never got into trouble. So, I, you know, I was certainly raised in a very... Um, happy family my parents have always been socially minded you know they've always been part of rotary clubs and i remember growing up we'd always have rotary exchange students staying with us and um you know it was a very open welcoming household where i was you know my friends could come and stay at any time so i i guess um as a child i really didn't know what i wanted but i put a lot of that down probably to the influence of my parents and that they were very community minded and had a very open welcoming household so when you were riding your bike around in the in the neighbourhood, what sort of things did you dream of as a child? Um, oh, sport. Yeah, I, I love playing sport. You know, I grew up playing tennis uh, and AFL, Australian rules football were the two sports that I played. And I guess um, I dreamed of, you know, doing really, really well. But 
But as I said, you know, I lacked a lot of confidence as a, as a kid and I just didn't believe in myself. Um, and I don't, I think it held me back from really achieving any sort of performance as a young child in sport. Um, you know, and that, that certainly that lack of confidence has been a, an Achilles heel of mine for my whole life, to be honest. It's something that I've, I still struggle with to this day. Talking about confidence, you, you had a very long career in the Queensland Police Service. You know, what attracted you to become, uh, you know, a policeman? And you know, obviously, especially when you talk about you having a lack of confidence, you know, it, it takes a lot of of that confidence to be in the police force and to be at the front and and serve the community. Um, so I, I I left high school and. So if I could sort of trace it back to my high school days, you know, I went through high school and I got average grades, but I, I struggled in school. Like I, uh, I really struggled in terms of I just thought I was, actually thought I was really dumb. <laughs> um, and so the grades that I got were okay, but they weren't they weren't high enough to get me into university. So I um I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So for a year or two, I didn't really, I was sort of a bit lost to be honest with you. I had a had a actually had to have a couple of major back operations from, a, from an injury playing Australian rules football that sort of uh, stalled me in my progress for a while. And I ended up just getting a job um, working for my dad. He owned a couple of supermarkets in suburban Brisbane. So I just went to work for dad, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And um, and then after a while, you know, dad and I spoke. We thought, well, I've got to get my act together. And I, I didn't really want to go to university because I just didn't think I was smart enough. Um, and so, you know, the police was something that had, had a, appealed to me. That's I, I have a very strong sense of right and wrong. You know, I can be a little bit black and white on things. And so I think from that sense, it appealed to me. But again, there was a real lack of confidence. And what I found is, although I lack confidence, I sometimes just, I, I face my fears by just doing it as best I can. So I joined the police and got in and graduated from the academy when I was 20. Um, and the academy was in suburban Brisbane, and they sent me to uh, a town called Mariba, which is uh, about an hour and a half west of Cairns inland. Um, you know, this was 1991, so it was a real man's man's town. You know, they uh, they they worked hard, but they played even harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was uh, I was really out of my depth, to be honest. And those first couple of years, you know, in far north Queensland. Um, was a real eye opener. Never lived out of home. Um, never been. I'd never been to that part of Queensland. And um, you know, I, I, whilst I was twenty, turning twenty-one, I looked like I was about fourteen. I had a really young face. So, I um, yeah, had a lot of struggles. Um, I was really, it was a really soul-searching time. But but I had a very, like I said, a real sense of right and wrong, and trying to do um, what I thought was right. Um, it was. It wasn't hard. I'm oh, sorry. It wasn't easy. It was a very, very hard time in my life. Um, but it's probably helped me to get where I am now in terms of you know personal growth and becoming a leader and um, you know lacking confidence. But just sort of whilst I lack confidence, I felt the only way to improve it was to put myself in situations that I found really difficult. You know, uh, as part of our training in Far North Queensland, if you're in a place like Mariba, which was a reasonable sized town they would send you to the remote one and two man stations in the middle of nowhere where there'd be like a, a police station and a pub. So you get sent out there as part of your training. So, you know, you'd be at a one man or a two man station in the middle of nowhere, 21, 22 years old, just completely out of my depth, you know. Um, 
but I learned a lot um, and it, it really helped me grow as a person and probably gave me some leadership qualities that I didn't know I even, even had, to be honest. It's a huge responsibility for a young person to, uh, to be thrown out there in, in a very isolated area. You talked about a number of lessons and challenges that you faced during that time. You know, what were some of those real key lessons that you've been able to take forward as a leader and a coach? Uh, I think just working with one, even in the police service, you know, the type of people back then, like I said, you know, we, they worked hard and they played hard. Um, you know, and I, so if unless you were good at drinking, fishing and shooting, you didn't really fit in. And I'm not a good drinker, two beers and I'm under the table. Uh, I couldn't shoot straight and I don't like fishing. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I kind of struggled with the lifestyle um, because... You know, I was into my running. Uh, I'd sort of gone into my running and triathlons after my back surgeries because I couldn't play footy or tennis anymore. And so I was, you know, I was doing a bit of running and a bit of swimming. And, you know, when you're out in the middle of nowhere running down a road, all the locals, you know, the cattle farmers and the and the locals think, God, who's this weirdo running down the middle of the road in the middle of nowhere? So Probably think you robbed the, uh, the local pub. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. So I, I, I struggled with the lifestyle. Um, and if I... Yeah, but like I said, you had a very strong sense of right and wrong. And if I could sort of share a story with you, as part of our training, we would, um, you know, and this was a mentality of the police service back then, you would, uh, you know, you'd go around and you'd you'd work in different sections of the service. And so in my first year up there, I did um, a month in the criminal investigation branch. And so we had this day where we, we worked with all the sort of different departments of the the police and some of the outlying stations and we would do drug raids because of sort of marijuana crops were really sort of prominent in that part of Queensland at that time. So the drug drug issue was a was a major problem. So anyway, go and do all these drug raids and then, the, you know, the thing back then is you work hard and then you go to the pub. You know, you go to the pub and have a drink. And so every you were assigned a, like a, a buddy that looked after you. So anyway, we're at the pub having a drink and this particular buddy that was looking after me in my first sort of few months in the job you know, he said, oh, you come down the pub for a drink? I said, yeah, I'll come down for one or two beers, sure. And so I went down, I had a beer, and then I said to him, look, I'm going home. You know, I want to go home. He said, no, you'll sit back down. I'll tell you when you can go home. I said, well, no, actually, I'm going home right now. He said, no, you'll sit the F down, and I'll tell you when you can go home, and I'll tell you what you can and can't do. And I'm like, sorry, that doesn't work for me, and I left. And so I was sort of blackballed. Uh, I was I was labelled as someone that, couldn't be trusted because I wouldn't drink with the boys. So that sort of, um, I think that real sense of right and wrong has sort of really stuck with me. And that when I had, I felt as though I had the courage to stand up to that. It's not that, you know, I didn't want to be part of the group or part of the team, but I didn't want to be forced to drink if I didn't want to drink. But mm. because I didn't drink with the boys, I was labeled as someone that couldn't be trusted. So I, I had a lot of experiences like that where I, you know, I had this sense of right and wrong and what I thought was the best thing and I would never succumb to peer pressure. Um, so I think I sort of found naturally that there was an inner strength in me that I didn't know I had and it was experiences like that, you know, and then, you know, you uh, sort of pub brawls and street violence was quite common in those days. So, you know, you'd get into fights and um, disturbances, you know, on a daily basis and you, you had to learn your way to to talk your way out of these experiences or otherwise you just didn't go home, you know, you just would get your head beat in. So I think the experiences of 
working with so many different type of people and then the type of people that you'll come across with, you know, in the public, good and bad, you just sort of, it, it taught me skills that I to this day value in terms of being able to read people, listen to people, look at their behaviours and why they do things and then being able to modify your behaviour as a result. You know, me modifying my behaviour to not get my head beat in was a pretty, it was a primal instinct. <laughs> it was a survival instinct if it was just me and two or three people fighting in the street and I'm in the middle of nowhere, well, I had to learn to be able to communicate and read what those people are doing so I didn't get my head beat in. And at the time, I was just, you know, I'd be, my heart rate would be through the roof and I'd be panicking, but I'd be like just have this natural instinct to say, well, hell, if I actually don't work this out, you know, it's uh, there's a price here and that's my safety. So I think those skills that you learn in the police that you can only get taught so much at the academy, it's a bit of sink or swim. Um, so the, that just that ability to to read people and, and communicate and, and understand the, the nuances of uh, nonverbal communication as well was uh, probably helped me a lot in my coaching to this day. Let's fast forward a little bit here. And in 2004, you made a switch to becoming an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. What was the catalyst from stepping out of the police force where you were serving the community to then owning your own swim school where you're building your own communities? Um, two reasons. I'd been in the police for 13 years and to be honest with you, I'd stopped caring. You know, there was, like I said, I have this sense of right and wrong and wanting to do what I think is best for the community. I got to a point in the police service where I actually didn't care anymore. Um, I wasn't passionate about the work that I was doing and I was seeing a lot of the people that I was working with that had been in the police service for 20, 25, 30 years and they were just bitter, twisted and cynical. And I could see myself becoming that way and by nature I'm, you know, emotional, caring, passionate and I was was, was losing that sort of passion um, and that ability to care about what I was doing. So I was 32, 33, I still felt as though I was young enough to get out and forge another career and my parents had been in... Um, you know, small business all their lives, so it's sort of something that I'd grown up with. Um, and sport and coaching um, was was something that I really enjoyed. And so um, career-wise, that was a, a reason to get out. At the time, I was married with two young sons, and my eldest son had some serious health issues that was also making things difficult. Um, emotionally, that was really impacting on me. So whilst the police service was very good in supporting me through that time, um, it was a combination of wanting to get out and forge my own career as an entrepreneur, as a, as a coach, and also um, maybe providing a better lifestyle for my um, family, in particular my son, who had some health issues. Mm. We'll talk about the family a little bit later on. Providing a service that helps develop a, in a really important life skill, such as swimming, Mm. is very rewarding. What made that swimmer school so successful? Uh, pure grit. <laughs> Just hard work and grit, you know. I was, in my last year in the police service, I was, so I, my last year in the police service, I was actually a neighbourhood police beat officer, so I had a, a, it was a lot of proactive policing, working in schools and businesses and, um, you know, the community trying to be proactive in terms of preventing crime rather than reacting to it. So at that time, I had that full-time job. I was also umpiring AFL football um, at the elite level. Um, so, you know, training a lot. I had a young family and I was project managing, you know, a six to $800,000 swim school. 
So I was busy, but I was just, I can get very focused at times and it's, whilst it's a strength, it's also a bit of a weakness to be honest. And so I knew nothing about project construction or management, but I was so focused on what I wanted to achieve that I just did what was required. Um, so I think it was just a pure drive and determination. And so, you know, the, the construction of the swim school finished, we opened it um, and it was a, a success. I think there was a bit of luck involved in terms of we picked the right location where there was a need to have a swim school in that area. Um, it was a risk in terms of, you know, put everything I had in terms of we had a couple of rental properties, sold those, uh, got some, you know, some uh, superannuation from the police service. So I put everything we had into this swim school, uh, my wife and I at the time. And, yeah, you know, look, and it was a, it was a team effort between, you know, my wife at the time and myself and our families helped us make it happen. But I think we're just really driven and focused. So there was a, just this drive to, yeah, I remember doing it thinking, God, I'm so out of my depth here. I have no idea what I'm doing. But, <laughs> but I, I sort of found a way. Um, and then, yeah, when it was successful, it was it was bloody hard work, you know, 60, 70-hour weeks. I was still umpiring AFL football. My son had health issues. Um, it was It was tough, but it was rewarding at the same time, you know, especially teaching such a valuable skill. Um, you know, and I got to teach from babies up to adults, you know, how to swim. And then we had sort of a junior squad program as well. So it was um, – and I, I, I had uh, – to be honest with you, I'd had minimal experience in swim coaching. I'd done some in the police service when I was a PE instructor at the police academy. We used to do swim coaching as part of that. So I wouldn't say I was very experienced. I just had a couple of good um, mentors. So Shapland Swim Schools is a franchise. And the owner of the Shapland Swim Schools was, he was uh, what I would call an expert in terms of teaching swimming. So, you know, it was very valuable to learn off him. But then I also learned a lot myself by going and spending time with other learn to swim coaches. And, you know, I'd go and watch squad coaches. I'd just go and watch them. I'd just sit on full deck and just watch them, how they went about their craft and um, applied it for myself. So you talk about really finding your passion there and, and really enjoying it, but obviously on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got, you're working full on, you've got a lot of things happening in your life. Mm. You, you made the decision after three years to sell a business, you know, what was the reason behind that? And then what was kind of the next challenge? Um, <laughs> the reason behind that was a lack of humility, to be honest. I had... We, well, not I, but we, my wife at the time, we had built this successful swim school and it was making good money. Um, we'd built up, we had, we had six to eight part-time staff. It was going well. We had, you know, like six to 800 kids a week through this through this school. Um, and I started to lose humility. I was I thinking to myself, gee, I've got this swim school. I wonder if I built a bigger pool. Could I have, you know, more kids? And I didn't realize what a success I had in what I was doing. And I started to just get a little bit too big for my boots. And so I, um, yeah, I looked at trying to do something bigger and better. And um, I got an offer to sell the, to, to, to sell it. And so I did. And we made a lot of money, like a lot of money. And, you know, sold it. Um, and because I wanted to go on to bigger and better things. But I made a huge mistake in that I'd sort of, yeah, lost my humility um, once I sold the 
swim school. My wife and I at the time had very different ideas about what to do with that money. Um, and I invested it into another business. You know, we're talking the vicinity of almost half a million dollars. I invested in another business. I didn't do my due diligence. You know, I invested into a business where the, the person involved, there were a lot of red flags coming up when I initially met him and I ignored those red flags because I was just looking at dollar signs and thinking, you know, I'd built this successful swim school and I could do anything. You know, I was, I was an entrepreneur and I was on my way. This was just a step into becoming a multimillionaire. Um, and invested into another business, and after 12 months, I'd lost it all. Wow. So it was a, yeah, I, I was 12 months lost it all um, to the point where my parents had to pay our rent. My marriage was falling apart. My son wasn't well. Um, I was in all sorts. Yeah, I just, um, but if I had been more humble and just realized what I had, um, then things would be different, but, you know. It was a it was a mistake and one that I take full responsibility for. Massive learning curve at oh, that stage in your yeah. in your life and career. Oh, massive! Like I was so mid thirties, so I'd gone from this massive high to, well, what the hell was I going to do now? You know, I was in mid thirties, couldn't afford to pay my rent, didn't have a job, didn't have a business. Yeah, I was in I was in a bit of trouble. So. You know, so from that position there, is that when you kind of really delved into or dived into the coaching? Uh, yeah, it was. So obviously, you know, I was still competing in triathlons and like I said, I was umpiring AFL football and I was still doing, um, you know, I'd been coaching swimming and really enjoying it. And so when I lost everything, you know, I just said, well, let's put a peg in the ground and start again. So I... Um, I got it. I was doing some personal training, um, just one-on-ones um, and a bit of group stuff. I got offered that job at Brisbane Girls Grammar as their head cross-country and track and field coach, and then I started my triathlon squad with one athlete, um, and that was how that happened. And then I also got a job selling radio for a radio station in Brisbane. And if anyone knows me, I'm not very good at sales. In fact, I'm really bad. But <laughs> I think I think that they they felt sorry for me to be honest, because I'd I'd got to know I'd used this radio station to promote our swim school, so I got to know them quite well. Um, and they're a, a Christian radio station, 96.5 in Brisbane. You know, they helped my family and I out at a at a really difficult time in our life and I'm, I'm not a religious person so <laughs> I was but it just showed me the generosity of people and so I got this job selling radio and I was pretty bad at it to be honest but so I was working four jobs you know selling radio doing personal training coaching girls grammar and I'd started this um, triathlon squad with one athlete um, and then eventually the the triathlon squad just boomed in success it just got bigger and bigger and bigger um at the time, in the Brisbane market, there was only two other real triathlon squads, and they were run by ex-elite professional athletes, uh, Troy Fiddler and Brad Bevan, um, and they were doing very, very well. And I started the squad, and I was a bit of a nobody, Neville nobody, and it picked up some momentum really quick to the point where I could not have to sell radio anymore um, and do it full-time, and I, I stopped personal training. I did the girls' grammar job for another three years because I was really enjoying that, and I was developing my coaching a lot. But then eventually um, I stopped that and I was just triathlon coaching for a number of years. But on a personal level, my marriage fell apart um, and I ended up 
I was living in a mate's garage for a while when my marriage fell apart. So um, there was still a lot of struggles going on personally behind the scenes, but I was trying to rebuild myself professionally um, and 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 get over the the trauma of what I deemed was a, this massive failure. And it was. It was a massive failure, and I was just so disappointed in myself that, you know, I'd made such a stupid mistake, and it was just arrogance. I just lacked humility, and it was a, probably one of my great, greatest life lessons. But it's interesting, if it didn't happen, I might not be where I am now. So mm. life has a funny way of, 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 you know, things happening. So you get a lot of compounding things happening at one time there. You, you're riding the highs and the lows of entrepreneurship and yeah and as you say you know you lack that humility at that point you've also got huge challenges from a family point of view where you're a son that has challenges that from a medical point of view and then obviously your marriage breaks down you know what was coaching did that affect your coaching or was coaching kind of the coping mechanism at that point oh 100 coaching saved my life coping yeah, coaching and training, you know, continuing to train uh, as an athlete, um, continuing just to train. I used to punish myself in training. Like I would put myself through these most ridiculous training sessions just because of the guilt and the I just didn't feel good about myself. And the coaching was a way to help others. So that it, it helped me escape from my own pain and torment that I was feeling about a marriage breaking down, um, you know, losing so much money feeling ashamed of what had happened and the coaching I found when I coached, I just forgot about my own problems. Now, I don't know if I coached well. <laughs> In fact, I'm sure there were days that I was probably a pretty poor coach, but for me, it uh, it saved my life just that, you know, because there were times where, you know, I'd be really struggling around the, my marriage breakdown or the, the issues around my, my eldest son and his health and I just remember just being in complete, you know, lying in the fetal position in the corner of my bedroom, bawling my eyes out, and I had to start coaching in an hour. I'm like, how the hell am I going to do this? But what got me up off the floor was thinking, oh, well, these people depend on me. You know, they depend on me to be there to deliver a session. You know, they're paying good money. So the fact that there were others depending on me just got me up off the floor. Um, and that was, it, it saved my life, that and my family and, you know, I met, met someone else and since we've since remarried and got a couple of young sons so and Suzanne my wife now between Suzanne and my parents um and coaching I'd be a hole without that I'd be a hole in the ground I'm 100% convinced that I wouldn't be here now without those because I was yeah I was really struggling so you know you continue to having that escape aspect of of the coaching and and also the training then you got to 2014 and it was a very challenging year for you when you faced a full breakdown what what you know for you was that real stimulus to go hey you know what i really need some help here um i guess with everything that had happened with my marriage breakdown losing all that money um i remember when my son first got sick so this was back in 2002 2001 um, the police sent a counsellor around and I told this counsellor what I was struggling with. He said, well, you've got reactive depression. And I said, oh, that's a lot of crap. Then I just trained harder. <laughs> just completely dismissed it. But it wasn't until 2014 when I had a complete breakdown and 
I was at a point where I wasn't coaching well. My relationship with my wife now fell apart. Um, and I was just in a bad place. I wasn't a good, I wasn't a good human. I wasn't a good father. I don't think I was a good coach. And it just all came too much. And I was almost at a point where I just thought, oh, bugger this, I'm going to stop coaching. I'll just get a job as a courier driver or something. With his, yeah. So I had a complete breakdown and then finally took stock that I think I needed help and I had to face my demons. You know, I was, the self-talk was very, you know, constantly negative. So I felt like a hypocrite in that I was telling people to be positive and to focus and have goals, but behind the scenes I couldn't even get my own life in order, so I felt like an absolute hypocrite. Um, and I think I'd finally realised that I needed help, and so I saw um, a GP and realised that I did have depression, started getting counselling, and, and, and much to my dismay at the time, started taking you know, antidepressants. Um, so it was it was a process of a few months before I really felt ready to to coach again and to you know and I, I opened my soul and my heart out to a good counsellor and you know she helped me realise that it was okay to not be okay um, and that what I'd been through wasn't was significant and that you know I didn't have to battle alone so that was a turning point. Um, you know, in my, in my life and in my relationship, my, like my wife now, Suzanne, you know, she wanted a new family and she'd never been married and I didn't want any more kids. And um, But then now we have two beautiful boys, Finn and Charlie. We got married and it's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. You know, your life is like a big roller coaster and I think many people face similar challenges but don't speak out as they're afraid of being judged or they're afraid of not living up to their their own high expectations mm. why why is it important for people to really realize that it's okay to be vulnerable and speak up no matter you know, what your background is or even what you're thinking that you what what you're going through you think is not that big a deal or no one will care um, I think we live in an age, you know, a voyeuristic age through social media where everyone paints this picture that their life is, you know, A1 okay and that they're doing the best because they don't want to be seen to be, you know, not being successful or whatever successful might be, whether it's a house or a job or whatever. So I think a lot of it's the world we live in. And I actually listened to there's a, um, a psychologist that I follow, Michael Gervais. He has some really, really great content. And he talks about how... You know, in our, our reptilian brains as cavemen, our biggest fear was a saber-toothed tiger. And our brains were designed to protect us from a saber-toothed tiger. But he feels as though our brains have changed to the point that these days, our biggest fear is what people think of us. You know, and I think that's just enhanced by social media and, and the reality TV lives that we all aspire to and watch. And so I think people have become afraid to sort of share their struggles and mental health is such a big issue you know in today's society that i think anyone in a position of leadership whether it be a coach a teacher an educator or a politician or anyone in a position of influence i think the more that those people can say well look you know i have had my struggles too and it's really hard and it, there's a real sense of power i think with being vulnerable being able to share your struggles and if I can share my struggles and another coach goes wow god I'm so glad I'm not the only one that's feeling like that and I had a conversation with one of our 
academy coaches here in Scotland the other day and he's doing a PhD into the mental health of coaches and he was telling me about a story where he spoke to 13 other coaches and 10 of them had admitted to having some type of mental health challenge. And that's that's just, that's phenomenal. You know, there's so much, I think as a coach, I always felt as though I had to have my 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 shit together, you know, that I couldn't be, you know, because I was the leader, I was there to help people, but I just such forward thinking. So I, you know, people like Brene Brown, you know, I just I've watched some of her talks and, you know, the power of vulnerability I think is amazing. So I think if we can just, you know, as human beings, we're, we're, we're designed to live in communities and be connected. So if we can have those real open, honest conversations, I, in my opinion, I just think it can only be a good thing to let our guard down a bit and be a little bit vulnerable. So if, if sharing my story helps that, well, then that's great. I'm, I'm okay with it. You know, in expanding on that, I think one of the big things is whether you're a leader um, in, in a business as a CEO or entrepreneur and, or whether you're a coach and, and working in high performance, it can be very lonely at the top and quite often people put themselves in positions where they think they have to know everything and that it is not okay to kind of be vulnerable in a sense and allow someone else to support them and give them guidance and, and help like that. So quite often we mm. don't see, we're seeing it more in business, but we're not seeing it so much in the high performance and coaching side of things where they actually need to have a coach themselves. They need someone there that can give that sort of outlying or the the helicopter view to say, hey, look, you know, the world that you may see may not be the full reality. And I think that's a big challenge and a, and a big shift that needs to start changing in that space. Oh, uh, so true. I couldn't agree more. And whilst my exposure to, to high-performance coaching in triathlon is relatively new, you know, I did before I got this role in Scotland, I sort of for the couple of years leading into that, I tried to spend time with other high-performance triathlon coaches. You know, Brett Sutton, Jamie Turner, uh, Dan Atkins. Um, you know, Warwick Delzeal. So the coaches that I had access to, I would sort of go and spend time with them to see what made them great. And yeah, they're all very different people, and I'm sure they've all had their own challenges as well. And I think, you know, since I've come to the environment here in the United Kingdom, there is a there's a there's a, certainly very much uh, between all the coaches in the United Kingdom. They do share and talk about things, but um, some of them there's a natural, you know, you, you can't get too deep with them. And I'm sure that'll come time. Come time will sort of help sort of open those those relationships where you can be a little bit more vulnerable. But uh, it's so true. I think we all need our mentors and our guiders. And people say, well, look, you know not doing that well and because we need to be at our best for the athletes that we coach to get them to be at their best it's the same for us if we're not at our best how can we expect the athletes to be at their best yeah some of the work that i'm doing we we were focusing on how do we shift people who are leaders of high performance to be high performing leaders first and i think that is a crucial element that is missing a lot in these high pressure high performance situations um, that needs addressing so for you, let's move forward to the present now. So you're now the lead performance coach for Triathlon Scotland and congratulations on your recent appointment. How did this opportunity come about for you? Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, a couple of years ago, 
I'd sort of started to realize that I wanted a new challenge in my coaching. So, you know, my, my, my background in triathlon coaching is age groups. I had, a, you know, we had a very successful age group squad in Brisbane, my wife and I. And so, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed every day, every session that I had coaching those age groupers. And I, I started to coach some semi-professional athletes, um, an elite para triathlete, a couple of juniors on the elite pathway and, I just felt as though I was ready for a new challenge in my coaching. But, you know, when I looked at the coaches that were at the elite level, you've got your different models. You've got your Joel Philadelphia type, type, which has a private squad where he's coaching, you know, um, people from all different federations and countries. Um, and then you have your federation type coaches. Um, but as an age group coach, I didn't believe you could do both. It was either you're an age group coach or you're a performance coach. You couldn't have a foot in both camps. So I, I met as many coaches as I could. I visited them and just one to see whether I thought I was capable, um, and two, from a financial and family perspective, was it possible? So I, I guess I made a decision that um, after you know spending time with those coaches and doing my research, that it was a path that I wanted to go down. Um, and ideally, I wanted I didn't have the the runs on the board to do it. You know, as a private person, I just. You know, obviously, I'd been an age group coach, so I wanted to get a job in a federation. Um, so I applied for a number of jobs. I applied for jobs in Hong Kong, the US, Singapore, New Zealand, not in just, just triathlon, but cycling, um, even a couple of swimming jobs. Um, and I got some interviews. Some I didn't even get shortlisted. Um, and then I applied for a job in the UK as the lead paratri coach um, in Loughborough. Uh, for the uh, Great Britain team, and so I got shortlisted for that job, and they flew me over, and it was a there was four of us shortlisted, and it was a two-day process, a very thorough thorough process. So you, there was three or four interviews, you had to do an athlete presentation, you also worked with the coaches and helping them deliver a session. So it was a very very thorough process. So it was myself, a gentleman from Canada, um, a girl who was the in my position now. In Scotland and another coach from the UK um, and I came very close to getting that job um, but the girl from Scotland got it and I think because I performed well the the Paratri team put in a good word for me in Scotland so I I uh, yeah I spoke to the performance director in Scotland uh, Fiona Lothian and and when they um, advertised for this job I put in for it and went through the same process had they flew me over and um, they, fortunately I got the job um, so they selected me after that process. So I went through the same two-day process in Scotland again um, to get this role. And so, yeah, feeling very humbled that Triathlon Scotland took a chance on a no-name age group coach from Australia to lead their program. So I was, yeah, I was, I am still deeply humbled that I've been given this opportunity. Brilliant. So for you, what do you think are the key ingredients to building a high-performance environment? Uh, it's pretty simple for me. One, it, the principles don't change a lot from coaching age groupers. The athletes know you have to care about them first and foremost. You can be the best technical coach in the world, but if they don't, if they think you don't care, well, then you're not going to get anywhere. So I think you have to show a genuine care for the athletes that you're working with. The relationships are crucial. So building open, honest relationships with the athletes that you're working with, but also within all the support staff. So. Even in an age group environment, we had support staff, you know, physio providers, massage providers, um, sports science, sponsors. 
So the principles don't change. So it's all built around uh, good relationships with everyone involved, all the stakeholders, being able to care for your athletes. But then, um, and then the athletes need to know you know what you're doing <laughs> is the other thing. So if you're going to build trust, so it's, you know you can obviously they need to know you care, but they also need to have they need to know that oh hang on this guy knows what he's doing. So I think you've got to have the the technical expertise to coach triathlon well, um, and I think that's the other thing. And then building a high performance environment is about the details really. I think it's it's very focused on the details. You know, everyone swims. They they all train hard. All the elite athletes they all train as hard as the next person. So if you want to get an edge, for me it's in the detail, making sure you know. Uh, even things like you know training peaks. Obviously, it's all in the detail. How much sleep are they getting? Getting the basics right. So getting all the things right that don't require talent, um, and then holding each other to account. You know, having environments where there's psychological safety, where you can have open, honest, challenging, candid conversations. You know, between coaches, support staff, athletes to coaches. So building that environment where there's there's a sense of um, collaboration and trust, and you're all working towards one goal. But in some ways, it's it's not any different to what I, you know, did in my age group squad. You know, I would, you know, every now and then I'd take a group of athletes out to lunch and I'd sit them down and say, okay, guys, I don't want you to tell me what I do well. I want you to tell me what I don't do well. And that can be a very confronting experience. So a lot of the lessons that I did in business with age group, I've just applied to a high-performance environment. And, I mean, I'm only just under four months into the role, so it's, it's hard to say whether, you know, what I'm doing is working, but um, I'd like to think that I'm adding value at this stage and trying to build a culture and environment that'll, you know, long surpass my time. So we all know smart people have great answers, but hmm. the best people ask great questions. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you did something for the very first time? Oh, that's a really good question, Craig. <laughs> When was the last time I did something for the very first time? Oh, does it have to be related to triathlon or anything like that? It's up to you, anything. Uh, so, yeah, okay, so something, I might be digressing a little bit here and taking an interesting segue, but um, I've been trying to teach myself a new skill. So um, I've been reading about you know, how you can change your neurons in your brain. You can teach yourself a new skill. And I'm 48 and I'm starting to get a little bit worried about my mortality and my age. So I'm trying to teach myself a new skill. So I'm teaching myself to brush my teeth with my opposite hand. And that's going well. So then the next thing I'm going to do is trying to teach myself to write left-handed. So it's just a little thing about getting uncomfortable every day. Um, like now I take a cold shower every day. So I'm, I'm doing something every day that normally I wouldn't have ever done. So I don't know if that answers your question, but they're things that I've started to recently do for the first time. No, Does that I, answer it? That's perfect. I like it. <laughs> so what is the one question that you would love to solve? Oh, why are human beings the way they are? Why, yeah, why is it that? What's the core reasoning behind human behavior why is it that some humans can have really successful lives and others not you know and whatever success might be so for me it's 
I think human beings, we're fundamentally flawed. Um, I think if you can, I think the best leaders, the best coaches understand human beings and they're able to tap into those relationships. You know, you look at the great coaches like Alex Ferguson at Manchester United, Wayne Bennett in rugby league, Alastair Clarkson in AFL football. You know, what Joel Philol is doing in triathlon I think is pretty good. Um, what is it about those people from a coaching context? What's Why have they been able to have such long-term success over so many years? And to me, it comes down to an, a deep understanding of human behavior. So if, when, I, when I look at coaching, if I have someone in the pool, I'm like, why is it that they're behaving in this way? What's causing them to behave in this way where if we apply one stress or stimulus to one athlete and the exactly the same stress and stimulus to another athlete, what causes them to react in two different ways emotionally, not physically, but why are they, what are they doing emotionally? And I think if I can understand that, well, then I can be a better coach. And that's the bit where I'm still trying to work out. And I, where I get it right, it's only because I've got it wrong so many times, where I've said and done the wrong thing in relation to an athlete. And it's just been a really um, <laughs> valuable learning experience. Mm. So how do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? Uh, clarity of thought, effective decision making. Um, for me, it's feeling confident. Uh, when I'm in a peak state of mind, I feel confident. Like having crisis of confidence is still something that, that affects me on a daily basis. So for me, it's about, yeah, I'm making quick, effective decisions. I'm not, pro I'm not procrastinating. I'm doing my daily habits and routines well and I'm feeling confident. So that's, they're the signs for me. It's nothing, it's not a physical thing, it's a, it's an emotional and mental thing where I'm feeling just um, uh, sharp and quick mentally and emotionally and I'm not, you know, by nature I'm a very emotional person. I feel things really deeply. So where I'm on top of my emotions, where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling things like I always do, but sometimes if I feel things deeply, I can really go down a big rabbit hole. So for me, it's and but if I'm on top of things and if I'm in my peak performance, I can recognise those feelings a lot better, and I can then take actions to stop going too deep into a particular emotion, which is what I feel like. Like I said, I feel things really, really deeply, um, and I have for as long as I can remember. And I wonder whether that has also contributed to the depression, you know, because I'm predisposed maybe, I'm not sure. Um, but I know I'm in peak performance when that's, yeah, I'm aware of those things a lot more and I can take measures to stop them. So Mark, you, you've really shared a lot of vulnerabilities here and provided some great life lessons. How can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you if they wanted to get in touch? Hmm. That's a really good question, Craig, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Because if you, you took the you know, social media, like you and I connected through social media, you know, and I've connected through some amazing people through social media. Like I've had conversations, only a couple, with Dan Lorang, who's Jan Fredino's coach, and with Fergus Connolly, who wrote this amazing book, 59 Lessons. I'm like, how good is social media that I can have a conversation with these people that I look up to? And so, you know, for me, social media... Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you want, YouTube, is such a powerful learning tool. So 
and something that I, you know, I've learned so much and something that I've been sort of pondering lately is, well, this comes back to my confidence thing. Well, I've got nothing. I'm just a Neville nobody. What have I got to contribute? So very, I, I have these things where I'll just, I just won't contribute to anything, but I want to be an agent for change. So in terms of people learning about what I do, I guess, you know, I've got a LinkedIn profile. I've got a Twitter profile. Um, I've got an Instagram and a Facebook. I wouldn't say there's anything of great value or content on there, but I feel as though maybe I should start sharing a bit more about what I do. So if someone wanted to connect with me, uh, Mark Turner, Tri-Coach, Instagram, uh, Turns, 1970, Twitter, Mark Turner, LinkedIn. Um, yeah, can connect with me that way. And um, I said I'll, I'll probably muster up a bit more courage to, to maybe um, share some stuff. I've just written my first book, the first ebook. Um, you know, triathlon secrets for the age grouper. So, um, yeah, I'm going to put that out soon. And um, yeah, so if people want to connect with me that way, and I, I, I love, I love having conversations. Um, I, I really enjoy having open, honest, real conversations, especially about coaching, but just generally about life. Where people, you know, you meet someone and there's that natural, oh, how are you? Yeah, good, good. And the weather's great today. And Imagine if we were just able to go straight into, I saw something on a TED talk recently about big talk, you know, instead of that, that natural um, wall that we put up when we meet people, you know, there's this girl that went out and started having these conversations with random strangers where she'd ask them a question like, um, so what, what's one thing you want to do before you die? So they're the conversations that I, I, I really enjoy. So if, yeah, I, I just love conversations and yeah, connecting with anyone on social media um with stuff like that so yeah if anyone wants to con connect feel please feel free mark it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today of you know you've been very courageous and humble in your approach to sharing your roller coaster of a ride of life and you know you've ridden the highs and lows starting from when you had very low confidence as a as a child and and how you kind of feel now that it may have inhibited you from a number of things that you wanted to do back then to then going through the police force where you were put in situations that really challenge your your views your philosophies your your deep inner thinkings and you held strong and that confidence you had at that point was something that people that stand out there and looking like they're really confident didn't share so you had something very special there early on to then going in and, and taking that big step into entrepreneurship and having a big dream and destroying everything at it, even though you weren't really sure you knew what you were doing and being comfortable with it uncomfortable. Uh, to then understanding that you, or later on understanding that you, you kind of lost that humility at one point and not really realizing what you had and then just throwing everything in there, taking a big gamble and the risk just went a little bit too high and you lost everything. and you know, the most successful people in the world go through those big highs. You know, they are willing to take those big risks because they're the ones who keep learning and, and you learn from those mistakes. And I can see the way that you're talking and the passion that's coming through that you've continued to learn from those lessons and those mistakes that you made to grow and go, okay, what's the next step? I want to achieve something else and I really want to give back to people in the community and make a difference in people's lives. And so I'm really happy to, to hear that you found your your kind of your role there in high performance and at triathlon Scotland and you're thriving in that environment, but you're still very humble in the sense that you don't know it all. 
you're still learning and you're still prepared to make mistakes and it's okay for everyone else to do the same. Um, I wish you well in your role and we look forward to seeing the, the fruits or the come through as you continue to nurture and grow the environment that you're in. So thank you very much for a great conversation today, Mark, and hopefully it can help enlighten other people who may have been through similar circumstances to open up and have that ability to have a conversation with someone so they can kind of let go of what's holding them back. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Craig. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to interview me. And I think you know, what you're doing with your podcast and, you know, and your um, being an agent for change, I, you know, I really appreciate you giving me, giving me the time and the opportunity to share my story. This week's Active CEO Wellness Tip is playing the long game. It's so easy to get caught up in the detail of the business and forget to look after the health and wealth of your company long term. Focus on the long game. Put things in place so that in the future, your company is thriving, growing and stepping up their game so you can stay one step ahead of the, of the marketplace. It's so easy to get caught in that detail in focusing on what we can do now and getting really lots of small wins, but that you may be missing that big picture that allows you to take the company forward in the future. If you're not thinking about how it needs to look in five years, 10 years or 20 years time, then you're going to become extinct because you're just going to be playing in your own little game at that single one time. It's an art of being able to balance focusing now and focusing in the future. But if you don't focus on that future, you are going to struggle. So focus on playing the long game. Thank you for listening to a brilliant and very vulnerable conversation with Mark Turner. Coaching saved my life on episode 61 of the Active CEO podcast. As we get close to the end of 2019, you'll be starting to review your yearly goals and beginning to think about what KPIs and goals you want to set for 2020. At times, it can be very lonely as a CEO leader and easy to become quite insular in your view of where you're at and what you need to improve on from a personal and professional perspective. Having a coach who can provide a 360 degree view of your current state and ask you the right questions to draw up what you want your future to look like is one of the most valuable tools and assets a CEO or leader should possess. To learn more about Active CEO coaching and how we can assist you, please do not hesitate to contact us about breaking the CEO code and breaking the coach code by contacting Craig at NRG, the number two, perform.com that's craig at nrg2perform.com or go to the contact page on the www.nrg2perform.com website this is the active ceo podcast where the ordinary don't belong join the active ceo movement by visiting www.nrg2perform.com that's N-R-G number two perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. 
Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.